Thanks for listening to the Media People Podcast, lively and insightful chats with the people who power the media industry. I'm your host, Victor Genova. For more episodes, you can go to mediapeople.ca or subscribe wherever you get podcasts, including youtube.com slash at mediapeoplepodcast. Views expressed by participants are personal. Jed Schneiderman, Episode 22 guest, returns to the podcast. When we last chatted with Jed, he was taking us through his early life and career that led him to starting Tapped Mobile. Since then, he sold Tapped and is now the country manager for Jebit, a platform that helps brands collect more data by driving customer personalization efforts. But Jed hasn't stopped there. A couple of years back, he co-founded the M2T Collective, that's Marketing to Tech Collective, a rotational program that gives recent graduates and those looking for a career change the opportunity to experience four different companies within the marketing, media, and technology space. And then there's Jed's most recent project, Clever Hire, a curated job site for marketing, media, and ad tech professionals that integrates candidate videos into the recruitment process. If you go back to 2017, uh, you may or may not recall that Apple announced significant changes um, that were uh, often referred to as IDFA changes, and that was uh, device tracking. Uh, Google also announced uh, changes to cookie tracking, what was otherwise referred to as the cookie apocalypse. Um, when we heard both of those announcements, we knew it was going to be much harder to operate um, a mobile business. Uh, you may or may not recall TAP specialized in a lot of location-based advertising, polygon targeting. And we knew that with the deprecation of the cookie and deprecation of other forms of mobile identifiers, that it was going to be much harder for us to compete. Um, eventually, there was a great fit found between us and EQ Works, a company that had great data and great technology. Um, and we felt that the combination of those two companies um, would would ultimately set us up for a better long-term success. What was it like the day the deal closed and you were no longer the owner and you had completely exited? Like you wake up that morning and for the first time in a number of years, you are not responsible for a company, let alone a team. So, Victor, I'm going to turn the tables on you. Have you ever built and sold a business? Uh, never, no. Okay. It's, so it's a great question. There is a tremendous amount of relief because uh, the process of selling a business tends to be much longer and more involved than one would imagine. This is the first time that myself and my business partners had sold the business. And so there was a sense of um, relief in that we had crossed a finish line, we hit a milestone, and we were very pleased just to get um, the, the deal done. So there was a sense of both relief and accomplishment at the same time. Um, and then the analogy that I like to use for those that are old enough to remember uh, the original vacation with Chevy Chase and Anthony Michael Hall. And um, Chevy Chase takes his son to the top of the Grand Canyon and they go, look, Rusty, there's the Grand Canyon. They bob up and down and then they leave. That's sort of the other feeling that we had in the sense that we sold the business, but there was a lot of work to integrate the business. It was a lot of um, work to make sure that our core thesis around bringing these two companies together. So you had the sales and marketing expertise from Tap Mobile, a fairly well-known and well-respected entity in the, in the industry. And then you had a company like EQ Works that had great tech and great data. And so while we got the paperwork done, 
there was still a tremendous amount of work to be done to fully integrate the companies and to ensure that basically the culmination of the two companies yielded something greater than um, just the sum of its parts. So there was relief and um, joy of getting the deal done. And then there was a short pause and then, okay, let's go bring these two companies together and uh, gear up for all the hard work. So hopefully that answers your question. At what point during that process do you start to think about what's next for Jet Schneiderman? That's a great question. There's probably two ways of looking at it. Um, it's not uncommon for businesses to have earnouts. So there is a timetable and there are certain milestones. So that drove um, one aspect. We had an earnout and um, we had to fulfill that earnout in order to sort of maximize uh, certain financial conditions. So from that vantage point, things were fixed. Um, and then I think um, there's just the stuff that happens while you plan. And so, um, you know, when we were done our earnout, which coincided roughly two years after we had sold the business, I had been in mobile advertising for about nine years. And I think at that point, I was ready for a new challenge. Mobile advertising was and is still sort of near and dear to my heart. Um, but it did feel like there wasn't a ton of change and there wasn't a ton of innovation going on in the space. And as I alluded to earlier, there were big changes happening from some of the large tech players. And at that point, I started to say, hmm, are there interesting companies? Are there interesting people out there? And I started to, you know, field calls from people and read a little bit more. And ultimately, that sort of led me to my next adventure. Was that next adventure Cognitive Corporation? It was. And how did that come about? Because you were their, you were their VP of business development. I mean, that came about because I was fortunate enough to meet uh, the chairman and founder of the company. Um, he's a well-known uh, Canadian tech entrepreneur. He had founded a company uh, over 20 years ago that um, still exists today um, and had a really interesting vision around something that I thought was worth exploring, and that was collaborative commerce. And so the idea there was, again, building what we've already discussed, but, you know, challenges of brands you know relying on rented or third-party data how could they take some of their own data and collaborate with other brands and it was a it was an ambitious and bold idea uh, it was a global company based out of canada and those opportunities are somewhat harder to find and i was just really intrigued by what i thought would be the next wave of marketing and that is brands collaborating with one another and your move to cognitive and even the exit from tapped happened during the pandemic. You're trying to exit from one company or, or facilitate the sale of something you started during the pandemic and then trying to move into a new career, a new position again, while the world is, I don't know, shut down, partially shut down. You really didn't know. It was kind of month to month at that point. Yeah. I mean, again, it's an interesting question. I mean, I think there's probably a couple ways of looking at it. One is, you know, people still recruit other people, people sell ideas to other people, whether it be in person or over Zoom or some form of remote technology. Um, when I had left EQ and joined Cognitive, this was still well within the first year of the pandemic. So this was roughly month seven or month eight. So at that point, most of us didn't have a line of sight to when the pandemic was going to end. And so I took a 
I basically just embraced what it was. And so was able to still meet a couple folks in person, but largely do things remotely. And I think at that point, you know, as much as marketers like to rely on data, at some point you just trust your gut. And I felt like I had met good people. I felt there was like a sound business idea. I felt there was a good business plan. At that point, I simply embraced life during the pandemic and uh, did, you know, probably most of my um, investigation, most of my interviewing remotely or over Zoom and then just a little bit in person. So I, I was fortunate that I did get to meet a couple of people in person and, by the way, complied with all of the COVID regulations at the time. Oh, absolutely. No, no, no one's saying otherwise. Did you find us? <laughs> honestly, it's not like the British press who are going after members of the British government right now that broke lo- lockdown protocols. When we started to come out of the lockdown and I had to go to, say, conferences, I went to my first one a couple uh, just a little while back and I was doing in-person meetings. I felt I was a little rusty, like a lot of those soft skills and interpersonal skills that you develop as a sales rep, just being able to read the room during a meeting, just being able to present being able to react to people's expressions. I felt that a lot of that stuff had kind of gone away and I had to relearn that. Did you find you were a little rusty when it came to just in-person communication? Yeah. Is this where we both admit that when we were in person with folks, we actually couldn't multitask, that we actually had to focus (laughs) on the other human being in front of us? Um, Yeah, we could put that. Yeah, that's part of it. It's just little things like small talk. Things were slipping away, those kind of soft skills that we take for granted that are so so easily developed and refined in sales over and over again, just kind of weren't there. On the flip side, I will say that I was never good at video calls and the pandemic made me better at them. Yeah. So why don't I pick up on both those points? I think point number one is when we came out of the lockdown and we came out of some of these pandemic restrictions, what I found, and maybe this is something that you're touching upon, is that I was interacting with folks for the first time in two to three years. And so you didn't have that same sort of relational equity or that relational familiarity, having seen them in the office, seen them out on the street, having seen them at an industry conference. So I felt I was rusty only in the sense that I was reintroducing myself to a lot of these people. And to your point, the small talk was difficult because we lacked connectivity. Like there wasn't something that was meaningful that we could really talk about. So that was without a doubt, a bit of an adjustment. So I do echo your comment about being rusty. On the pre, on the, on the time before that meeting, managing during the pandemic, what I found was one really had to be inventive and creative. So to your point, um, really trying to connect with someone when meeting them for the first time over Zoom um, was a challenge. And that was, you know, perhaps, you know, looking at their LinkedIn profile or gathering a little bit more information. I felt that when I was getting ready for meetings on Zoom, there was an extra level of prep because that small talk often didn't present itself because folks were back to back and they just wanted to get right to it. And so it was a question of, could you do something small in order to sort of just break the ice and sort of drive a little bit of humanity into what was otherwise a cold and sterile uh, sales process. When you moved to Cognitive Corporation, this was your first time having a boss in, what was it you'd said, eight or nine years? Was that difficult? I think what was most difficult, because I think anytime you start a new job, it presents challenge. I think what was most difficult was we interacted for the most part 
um, remotely. And I, I am an extrovert. I do like to get to know people. I think when you build up personal relationships, it drives um, efficiencies on a team. So what I found um, more difficult and more challenging as opposed to having a boss, because I worked for some really great managers. And again, the company was really well structured was um, we did most of our work over Zoom. So that was a challenge. And we were also a global organization. So I worked with many people who I never, in fact, met in person. Um, and so that actually, for me, was a little bit of a barrier. Um, and so the serendipity of meeting someone in the hall or the ability to having had sort of a unique personal experience in order to drive um, a stronger relationship. I had to work really hard to overcome some of those obstacles, i.e. distance and lack of being in person. Um, and, and so that was probably the most difficult part. Tell us about how you found your current opportunity at Jebit, because it started with you, correct me if I'm wrong, discovering the, discovering the company in a TechCrunch article. Yeah, that is correct. Um, so I'll build on that. I mean, for starters, I heard about this company and folks are sort of quick to sort of point out the similarities between my first name and Jebit, um, which grew tired, tiring pretty quickly. Um, I had a question in there about that, but I withheld it. <laughs> Thank you. You addressed much. it for me. What, what I found um, a bit surprising was barely um, familiar with a lot of the large ad tech and martech companies. I tend to start my day by reading for about half an hour to 45 minutes every morning. And here was this company that had just raised a, um, a large amount of money from a very well-known private equity company. Um, and I'd never heard of them. And they were doing work for world-class uh, brands, brands that are very well-known, Procter & Gamble, Nestle, L'Oreal, the National Hockey League, the National Football League. Um, and the list went on and on. And I was like, hmm, it's kind of funny. I've never heard of the, this company. So. Um, I delved deeper. I read the full TechCrunch article. I went to the company website and there was this whole category of software called quiz commerce. And so I was further intrigued by that. And even though I'd probably passively interacted with a quiz once or twice on a website, it wasn't something that I, I was quite familiar with. So I went to the company website. I actually booked a demo and I did the demo and I was blown away. Um, and I was blown away because the product was easy to use. It was really easy to create quizzes. Um, they had all these great brands using it. They had tons of case studies. Um, they were leaders um, within their space. Um, and at that point, I said, are you doing any work in Canada? And they were selling into Canada, but they didn't have a team on the ground. And so at that point, I simply cold called the president, who was also the chief revenue officer, um, put forward what I thought was a somewhat compelling case to expand into Canada. He told me initially that he wasn't interested. Um, and like any good salesperson, I overcame his objections. Um, and we were able to mutually agree uh, that I would to come on board and focus on expanding uh, the business in Canada as well as in other markets. If you don't mind me asking, what was the objection and how did you overcome it? I think the primary objection was that they just simply didn't need more salespeople because the company had been ramping up. And I think that they also didn't feel as though um, Canada 
merited its own unique sales team or sales force. Um, how I was able to overcome it was we were able to look at um, the list of their clients in the United States that also had uh, Canadian operations and Canadian businesses. And I was able to convince him that if we were to basically expand all of those accounts into the U.S., that that would be a quicker and more efficient and more profitable way of driving revenue than trying to bring on net new clients. So the notion of land and expand, so expand clients who are already on the roster in the U.S. or in other markets and expand within Canada. Speaking about survey data, when I was doing media research years ago back in university, one of the things they taught us was beware of any sort of bias that your sample size or your respondents might have. Basically, they were saying that if this is potentially an incentivized survey or if, say, for example, you have some sort of relationship with the person participating, they might try to give you the answers that that you think you're looking for. How do you guys get around that and make sure that you get absolutely the most authentic and honest answers your clients need so they're informed with what their customers are thinking? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, allow me to sort of set some context and then use um, one or two examples. The, the, the Jebit software powers experiences like product finders and gift finders and things that are ultimately designed to help people um, basically uh, declare or self-identify in order to save time and find products and other items on websites that best suit their needs. So to take your question, and here I am constantly trying to interview you, Victor, but if I were to turn it around and say, imagine if you walked into a store, someone would probably greet you. They would probably say, what brings you in here today? You may or may not answer that question truthfully. And if you do tell them and there is um, like further discussion or further exploration within the store. So you could imagine walking into a store, someone says, what are you here to do today? They say, I'm here. You say, I'm here to buy a gift. Great. Is it for yourself or someone else? They might then say, if it's for someone else, is there a special occasion? What's their gender? What's their age? Do you have a budget? Does the person have a preference? They'd ask you half a dozen questions. At that point, what they would do, ideally, if they're a good salesperson, is they would walk you to the section of the store or they might even bring you out one or two items. That's really what Jebit is trying to help brands do. So it is, while it is about collecting data from consumers, the majority of the Jebit experiences don't have a financial incentive. And so the reality is there is no incentive slash disincentive for a person to offer up truthful answers because it's really about helping them find the right product um, across any category and ultimately save them time. And that's the benefit to the consumer. And that is typically why they tend to answer truthfully. So if I had to summarize that, it's like bringing order to the curation process because there could be a lot of chaos behind that if someone is having trouble making up their mind. Yeah, I mean, my own personal point of view, this is not a corporate statement. This is my own personal point of view. Most websites aren't great. It's it's no different than like walking up and down an aisle at a store looking for the item that you'd like. And I true again, these are my own beliefs, but I think that most websites force consumers to do a lot of the heavy lifting. What this uh, software does is it recognizes that 
um, and it helps um, brands sort, or as you say, curate through like a ton of different choice, get the item that they want. Um, it's decision support and it's decision support that helps you save time. And ultimately, if you can not only save a person time, but actually help them find the right item, then there's a whole bunch of benefits that flow from that. So you have lower returns, you have a more satisfied consumer or customer, you probably drive um, better brand affinity and you probably drive better repeat purchase. And in a lot of cases, what we see is that the basket size is much higher as well because people just have a good um, online experience. When you made the move into, is it safe to say that Jebit is more of a SaaS play than a media play? Jebit is a SaaS platform. A SaaS platform. Okay, so SaaS platform sales, far different from what we're used to in media. Media, you could have a bunch of contracts coming in, a lot of quick kills, a lot of instant gratification from it. But SaaS, from what I understand, it's far more of a long play. If that is the case, or if there's any truth behind that statement, was that a bit of an adjustment knowing that the sales cycle is going to be far more different? Like maybe the contracts are far more lucrative, but there'll be fewer of them versus, say, smaller and more frequent contracts that you might have had from your media sales days. It was an adjustment. And so the two adjustments that I had to make were one, I had to adjust my own expectations about the length of the sales process, as you rightly called out. Um, so I had to retrain myself in order to understand um, and better predict how long it took to go, how long it would take to go from a first meeting to a second meeting. Um, and so I did have to adjust that. There was a lot of internal and external benchmarking. And the second um, key adjustment that I had to make was to become a better salesperson and ask more questions up front. So as I alluded to earlier, um, the prep for a SaaS call is much different than a media call. You, you know, you're typically not getting an RFP, which means you have to gather a lot of information. You can go to a website, you can do some sleuthing, you can read a lot of um, um, information that's in the public domain about a company. You really had to go in prepared because the more prepared one was, the better a call would go and therefore the quicker the sales cycle and the sales process would, would typically play out. So those were two br pretty big adjustments. Um, and then the third, which is more of a generalization, is that um, oftentimes a media salesperson um, has um, status equivalency, meaning they, they often are selling to someone who understands and who can make informed choices about um, the media solution. Typically, the person working for a media property or tech company knows more than the, the buyer about that product. Um, but oftentimes they're informed about actually how to buy the product. In SaaS, sometimes you were introducing quiz commerce to a brand for the first time, meaning you were suggesting that they run a Jebit experience on their website and they'd never run a survey before or they had never run anything interactive. And so you have to educate them on the merits and the benefits of it. And in other cases, you might be selling to someone who is using a competitor, in which case they were highly knowledgeable, but you have to key in and focus on where, um, in this case, Jebit was either better or unique or more powerful than the solution they were using. So those three adjustments or those three differences are probably the biggest ones between media and SaaS.
I want to talk about a couple of other things that you've been heavily involved in and were, I guess you could say, partners in as well. The first one is, and this started after we did our first podcast together, M2T or the Marketing to Tech Collective. So what is that and where did the idea come from? So the M2T Collective um, is uh, a passion project. It's something that I'm very proud of. Um, but I, I have multiple partners in crime on this. Um, Alistair Taylor, who is today the CEO of Publicist um, Media in Canada, Diana Liu, who's the country manager for LinkedIn, and John Hillis. The idea came about um, to the four of us, essentially, uh, was when I started Tap Mobile, I was surprised by a lot of industry behavior. So when I started Tapped in 2011, I had never sold media. I had been in the marketer chair for quite some time. So I had bought media. I'd worked with media agencies, but I had never sold um, media and technology solutions directly to media agencies. So notwithstanding the fact that um, a lot of media professionals were very good at their craft, what I observed was that most had only ever worked in media agencies. Most, again, is very subjective. I don't have a number to really quantify it. But what I what I what I hypothesized or what I theorized was that I thought um, media professionals would be better, media agency professionals would be more empathetic, more knowledgeable if they had actually worked in other companies, if they had worked for a publisher or a technology company, if they had worked for a brand, um, and a term that you know, Victor, I don't love, um, but uh, had worked for a vendor. Because what I found was all conversations came down to rate. And so I got frustrated in that, you know, if a client was asking for a rate discount, what I felt was they were, they were focusing on the wrong issue. And that is most brands want to sell more stuff and make more money. And so if we could move the um, conversation away from rate, if we could better educate the entire industry so that um, it would be more collaborative, um, you know, examples like not asking for creative to be swapped out on a Friday afternoon or not asking for something to be optimized um, and then essentially reflighted um, just because it's digital. It, we felt that if folks could work at a whole bunch of different places, like the law profession has the articling program and medicine has the um, um, the residency program where you work in a whole bunch of different departments so that you could understand the, the holistic or the full view. That's really where it came from. And so I was lucky enough to sit down one day with Alistair Taylor and I shared sort of this vision and he was very supportive of it. And he was able to recruit Diana and John. Um, and we've been running the program for over five years. Uh, the program in its current form is a two-year um, uh, rotation starting in the fall of um, 2024. It'll be back to a one-year rotation, but we've got folks like um, Link LinkedIn, we've got Starbucks, we've got Publicist Media. So we have some unbelievable brands um, where people can go out and get really good experience right out of school um, and get a really holistic view of marketing, media, and technology. And if any students are listening to this right now and they want to put their candidacy forward for the program, how do they do it? They can go to the website. So it's M and then the number 2TCollective.com. Uh, recruiting for the 2024 uh, cohort should be starting in the fall of 2023. And the website tends to get updated 
as soon as we have dates and other timelines associated uh, with the new cohort. Let's talk about your latest venture, Clever Hire. That just went live. Where did the idea come from and what problem are you trying to solve? I tend to draw Venn diagrams when I think about new businesses. So this came about from three insights. Um, Roughly two and a half months ago, so um, for those listening, um, we're recording this in July. I'm not sure when it's going to get aired. Um, but in, in roughly May of 2023, uh, when there was a lot of layoffs in the tech sector, I saw folks posting um, offers to help folks who had been laid off. And I, 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 I felt there was a better way of helping. So folks were just generically offering, you know, either advice or stuff like that. And I thought the advice was rather pithy and not that valuable. So um, uh, one Sunday morning, I created a free job board. So um, I just scraped about, at the time, 41 jobs. I put it into a Google Sheet and I kept updating it. And so over the course of about two and a half months, the, the sheet peaked at about 550 jobs. Today, there's about 350 because once a month or so, I tend to um, remove the jobs that have been filled. And so it's been quite popular. It's had several hundred thousand views on LinkedIn and, and thousands of um, hits to the actual sheet. And I think what it taught us was that a curated job board um, is valuable. So if folks know that a specific board has certain types of jobs, and folks um, that I'm connected with tend to know that I'm most interested in marketing, media, and technology, and digital. You know, a website like that could be popular. So we kind of proved that just by accident. The next thing that I saw, which was really interesting, was as I was building this job board, I started to get a little bit more familiar and curious about LinkedIn, Indeed, and Monster, and other job boards. And what I noticed was a lot of these large job boards have what's called easy apply. So it's very easy for someone to apply for a job with just a few clicks, which means they don't have to customize their resume. They don't have to customize their cover letter. They can customize both if they choose to, but they don't have to. And so what I started to learn was um, a lot of jobs fill up very quickly. And the reason for that is a lot of job boards charge uh, employers for what are called approved resumes. And so what I deduced was that companies have a budget for hiring. Once they get resumes that either hit or exceed their budget, they tend to either close job postings or remove them. So again, my own conclusion was that really recruiting has become a speed game. So if a job gets posted and if you don't um, basically apply for it fairly quickly, the job will often get taken down or closed, in which case you miss your window. So I didn't love that idea um, because if the best candidate was away on holiday or if they failed to see a job um, it meant that basically they lost out due to factors beyond their control the third insight and the third um, piece of the puzzle was uh, going back to what we spoke about earlier with m2t um, m2t um, has a video application as part of the process and the notion there was a lot of us um, are doing M2T as um, a volunteer project, a labor of love, and we wanted high quality applicants. We didn't want to have to review thousands of resumes because we couldn't. So if you start to assemble these component parts that we've spoken about, um, HR managers have told us that you're getting a lot of applicants for job. That could be due to the economic environment. 
Um, but it could also be due to this easy apply and other sort of um, norms around hiring. What we felt was that there's a yield problem in hiring. And what we mean by that is some stats that we've gleaned are um, the average job gets 120 applicants. The average resume is only looked at for 11 seconds and only 2% of people are interviewed. So if you, you look at all of the work that goes in for um, job seekers, if you look at all the time and energy that um, recruiters and companies and hiring managers put into finding candidates, it's rather inefficient. So Victor, I'll speak to you as a media sales professional. It's like bragging about a 2% click-through rate when the industry averages one. I mean, the reality is 98% of people are still ignoring your ad or not taking action. So really what we are trying to do is solve for a yield problem. So we are putting together a curated job board around marketing, media, technology, and all things digital. And we are going to, when someone applies, they can upload their resume, they can still upload a custom cover letter, but then they have to answer three to five um, asynchronous or one-way video questions. Employers get to choose those questions. They can rely on our help if they'd like. But the idea is these are three to five questions that you're gonna ask anyways in the first interview. And what we learned from M2T was we don't get thousands of applicants because most people just don't wanna take the time to answer, in the case of M2T, the video application and what we believe for Clever Hire will be um, the three to five questions. And that's a good thing. Um, for those that are concerned about um, DEI and um, neurodivergent candidates, we actually think that a one-way interview is the best way for someone to show their true and their best selves. Um, if, if companies want to give people the opportunity to re-record a question, if they want to give them several days to answer um, a question, in which case someone can prepare, we actually think that's a much better outcome for the hiring process. So we put it out there. Um, we've already got thousands of people on a waiting list. Uh, those are job seekers, and we're just in the process of assembling um, uh, jobs, and uh, we should be going live imminently. So if anyone listening to this wants to jump on that waiting list or learn more about Clever Hire, where do they go? Cleverhire.co. Um, so C-L-E-V-E-R-H-I-R-E, -E -E, one word, dot co. Um, and we've got a landing page up there and they can just put down their name and their email address and uh, they'll get pinged as soon as, as soon as we go live. Or if folks are listening to us post-launch, uh, they just go to cleverhire.co. Jed, this has been a fantastic chat. The first time we spoke, I wasn't doing rapid fire questions. So this is a, your chance to do it. Are you ready for rapid fire questions? I am ready, Victor. Okay, the campaign you are most proud of. Uh, when I worked at Microsoft, the Bing Photo Contest, which was a collaboration with Walmart, um, we drove uh, huge increases in Bing awareness and Bing market share, and um, also outstanding results for Walmart for their digital uh, photo finishing business. Your favorite movie? One that I'm willing to admit in public, I'd say Best in Show with Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara. If Hollywood were to make a movie based on your life story, who would you want to play you? I'm going only based on visual recognition. Sadly, uh, neither of these stars are with us today. Uh, Treat Williams, because someone once said that I looked like him. That was in my days where I had a full head of hair. And Burt Reynolds, because I'm pretty sure I dressed up um, as him in Smoking the Bandit one uh, year long, long ago for Halloween. If Hollywood were to make this movie based on your life story, 
what would you call it? A little self-deprecating here, The Big Short. Your favorite book? Fiction, I'd say East of Eden. Uh, business, I'd say Zero to One. Your favorite song? Uh, anything by Ben Harper. The best advice you have ever received? I think the best advice that I ever received um, was you were given two ears and one mouth, so listen more than you talk. And then another, another great concept is you don't have to be great to start, but you have to start to be great. So for all those who are thinking about doing something great, um, I would encourage you just to get going. My signature closing question, if you weren't in media, what would you be doing and why? I would either be a talk show host, uh, but given that Victor has already beat me to the punch, <laughs> I would probably say I would be a physician. Um, my dad's a physician, my wife's a physician, and I love helping people. Jed, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. That's it for today's show. For more episodes, you can go to mediapeople.ca, your favorite podcast platform, or youtube.com slash at Media People Podcast. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Vic Genova.